0: Good evening. I'm going to say some stuff to you before I read our passage of scripture. Um, the passage I'm going to read is the latter half of Romans chapter eight, starting at verse 14 and going all the way to the end of the chapter. And if you have been a Christian for much time at all, a great deal of these verses will probably probably be very familiar to you. Most likely, your formation up to this point. We'll have spent some repeated time pondering these verses, and you will have probably heard them preached uh, many times throughout your life. There's lots of things that we could focus on, or lenses through which we could interpret the latter half of Romans chapter 8. But tonight my proposal is that we read the latter half of Romans chapter 8 as a passage about prayer... And especially as a passage about prayer in the Holy Spirit. About how the Holy Spirit sustains our prayer and makes it what it is. I want us to think tonight about the Holy Spirit as being given to us for the sake of prayer. Maybe first and foremost. I want you to think to yourself that when Jesus gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit... That what he's giving us is the gift of a prayer life, a prayer life that is properly called Christian. Christian prayer is prayer in the spirit. So we often talk about insofar as the Holy Spirit enters into our, our Christianese at all, our conversation and grammar as Christians. One of the ways I think we frequently hear the Holy Spirit mentioned is in our talk about trying to rely on God's strength instead of on our own strength. We might say that we want to do our work in the Holy Spirit, in the, whatever the important undertakings are in our lives. We don't want to do things God calls us to do from our strength, but instead to do those things from the strength of the Holy Spirit, which I think is great. But the question very broadly that I'm trying to ask us tonight is, do we rely on the Holy Spirit to bear the burden of our prayer? If we are already even a little bit in the practice of trying to do our work under the strength of the Spirit, do we rely on the Holy Spirit to strengthen our prayer? For that matter, even more broadly, do we pray as Christians? Do we pray? You probably have already heard me say at some point over the course of the school year, That despite the fact that arguably there is no activity, no discipline more basic to the Christian life than prayer, like telling people about Jesus, extremely important, serving poor folks, extremely important, but I would say that none of those things are anything outside of the grounding of the activity of prayer, and I'm pretty sure scripture has my back on that claim. And yet despite the fact that there's arguably no activity, no practice more essential or basic to the Christian life than prayer, I could testify to the fact that very few Christians have a, a serious and disciplined life of prayer. When I hear Christians make confessions, one of the things that is most frequently confessed is inconsistency or a lack of dedication or commitment to a life of prayer. So do we pray? And if not, why? If we don't pray that consistently as Christians, why is that? Anybody have any answers to that question? I would like you to propose some answers. Yes? Okay. Yes, that's probably true. It slips the mind. It slips the mind, right? So it doesn't appear that interesting to us. We might then ask why. Like there are things that don't tend to slip our minds, right? But you're right. I, I do think that prayer can easily be overlooked. So if that's if that's the case, why might that be? Any other answers to that really broad question? If we don't pray, why not? Yeah. We've already filled up our time with the things, mm-hmm. and we have a hard time justifying like, all these like, useful or needful things. We're like these things have to get done, so I'll pray later, mm-hmm. and then we just keep finding more things to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Pete. Hmm. We don't think we know how, or maybe we don't think we know how to do it well. Did you want to say something else about that, Camelia? Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we might be afraid that, um, that prayer is just a, a game that we're playing in our own minds, and that God isn't actually going to answer the things that we're praying for. What's, a, what's so funny over there? It was just my reaction to that statement. Oh, got it. What was your reaction? I'm sorry, I didn't notice. Ooh. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. I think all these things are true. And in some ways, as a way of, of encompassing them and maybe going beyond them. One of the things I really want us to hear Romans 8 teach us tonight is the possibility that the reason that we shrink from prayer, the reason that we don't receive the gift of prayer in the Holy Spirit that the Lord wants to give us might be because prayer in the Holy Spirit is so inarticulate. Because praying in the Spirit is so profoundly inarticulate. Because there's some, there's some dimension of, of prayer in the Spirit in which our words fail us. And if that is the case, then that might mean, that might be a a way of naming a really, really deep kind of unattractiveness of prayer, given the kind of animals that we are. After all, words are what makes us human. Words are the thing that really definitively makes us human. There are all kinds of other things we could point to to say uh what makes us mammals all right or what makes us creatures in general but if we were to try to answer the question what is it that distinguishes humanity from all the other mammals animals aspects of creation words is one pretty sufficient way of answering that question speech distinguishes us from every other living creature in the garden as genesis has it Adam is the animal who names the world that God has made. He's the only animal that does that, that gives all the parts of creation its names. And this, in no small part, is no small part of what it means that the Lord created human beings in his image and his likeness. The fact that Adam and Eve are the talking ones. The naming ones language makes room in the world for any project that is of interest or worth that is true even for folks who think that their life's work is all about or squarely within the realm of math and science language is the thing that makes room in the world for any project that is of interest or worth what is the story of the Tower of Babel in the Bible But the story of how all our industry and agency depends upon our ability to talk to one another. Was the story that the book of Acts is telling in the New Testament. But the story of how God empowers the missionary industry and endeavors of the church. Precisely by giving Christians powerful speech. Language animates all of our acting we can't do anything unless we can describe the thing that we propose to do and likewise we don't know anything except through the gift of words so these are big claims that i don't have time to all the way unpack but if you want to unpack them more you can be part of our our cool book club that we're doing sometimes but suffice it to say for right now let's imagine Raise your hand if you're in the book club. All right, anyway, that's a sidebar. Imagine for a minute that you've never seen a mountain being from Louisiana. And somehow you've never even heard the word mountain before. And then one day, by the grace of God, you are someplace that has real, honest to God, mountains. There you stand beholding one. And yet you don't have its name. You don't have the word mountain. Mountain. You don't know what it is. Until you have the word mountain, all you can do is have a sensory experience. Your eyes can take in its scale and color and vastness. Your ears can hear maybe the wind as it whistles over the peaks. You might even be able to smell what the trees smell like on the sides of that mountain. But until you have the word mountain, you don't know what it is that you're standing in front of. We don't know anything except through the gift of words. And so words are what makes us human. And yet, human beings do also have utterances that are not words or language. Uh, The sound that Lucas made earlier may, may be one of them. We have utterances that are not language. Utterances that form no words, and they're not strung together in order to make sentences. And surprisingly, despite the importance of language that we see throughout Scripture, some of these utterances we also see in Scripture Utterances that are not words are what unite us in solidarity with the rest of creation, as much as our capacity for speech sets us apart from the rest of creation. Not only that, some of these inarticulate wordless utterances turn out, as we're going to read in Romans chapter 8, some of these wordless utterances turn out to be the sites of our deepest communion with the Holy Spirit. So with all that in mind, hear this reading from the letter of the Apostle Paul to the Romans. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons and daughters of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons and daughters, by which we cry out, Abba, Father, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the eagerly awaiting creation waits for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only that, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see through perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. Now, in the same way, the spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we should, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And these whom he predestined, he also called, and these whom he called, he also justified, and these whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Will tribulation or trouble or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers nor height, Nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is the Word of God. God. So, if we're going to do what I said we're going to do here and read Romans chapter 8, the latter half of that chapter, as scripture that teaches us about prayer in the Spirit. Then the thing to notice about our prayer life first, in what we just read, is that the Holy Spirit is the one praying. The first thing to notice about prayer in Romans chapter 8 is that the Holy Spirit is the one praying. In verse 15, we can hear human beings saying words, crying out articulately to God, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption. This is still, uh, this is actually a matter of interpretive um, decision making or our translation decision making, but this is a, a small s spirit, right? So we're still talking about a human spirit here. You've received a spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by which we cry out, Abba, Father. That's a human spirit that's crying out, it seems initially in verse 15. But in the very next verse, it becomes immediately evident that these words on our lips, Abba, Father, these words are entirely empowered by and dependent upon the voice of the Holy Spirit. For in verse 16, we read, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And the phrasing here suggests not a sequence of speakers as if um, the Holy Spirit testified to us at some point in the past that we are children of God. And because we listen to the Holy Spirit at some point in the past and learned that we are children of God, we then learn how to address God with our words by saying, Abba, Father. That would be a sequential order of events. All right. But instead here, the phrasing suggests That the Holy Spirit is speaking simultaneously with the words that are coming out of our mouths. So that when we cry out, Abba, Father, at that moment, the words are being sustained by what the Spirit is saying to us in that very moment. So as we are addressing God, Abba, Father, as we are articulating our status as adopted daughters and sons with those words... As we're speaking those words to God, the Holy Spirit is speaking to us, testifying that we are children of God. So that some scholarly translations, not the one we use tonight, but some other translations of, uh, of this passage, render verses 15 and 16 like this. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very Spirit, bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Did you catch the difference there? When we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very Spirit, bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Regardless of those subtle differences in translation, again, it should be clear enough in verses 15 and 16 that the thing to note about Christian the Christian prayer life is that the Spirit is the one Praying or testifying, and that it's the voice of the Spirit that empowers moment by moment the prayer, the articulate words in those verses. In fact, though, and going kind of beyond that, although Christian prayer begins in this reading in straightforwardly articulate praise, if we go on, Christian prayer seems to descend gradually into something far less articulate. Indeed, groaning, or depending upon your translation, sighing. These words often are interchangeable. Groaning or sighing turns out to be the most prominent kind of spiritual utterance in the passage Uh, Groaning is the utterance that is most obviously emphasized in what we just read. And that is in no small part because Romans chapter 8, the latter half of Romans chapter 8, is a passage about suffering. So note in verse 17, up until that point in the chapter, or in our reading... Uh, this sounds like pretty triumphant language right like we are decisively victoriously not having a spirit of slavery anymore but we've got definitively a spirit of sons and daughters by which we cry out Abba Father and the spirit is sustaining that outcry to God and if children in verse 17 now and if children then heirs heirs also of God and fellow heirs with Christ and this just sounds like I don't know, it just keeps getting better and better and better. And then there's this like dissonant note. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified with him. And if you're reading this carefully, that ought to seem a little bit out of sync with what has come so far. And we ought to ask at that moment, what in the craft does suffering have to do with this incredibly triumphant experience that Paul's been talking about Beginning at the beginning of Romans chapter 8, all the way until right now. But really, depending upon how you want to slice it, he doesn't quit talking about suffering from that point all the way until the end of chapter 8. Uh, so from there, what we're going to listen to, among other things, is especially groaning, all right? And the groan saturated. Experiences and prayers that we're going to hear from here throughout the rest of the chapter, I think might reveal to us how these two things, suffering and then adoption, can in fact hold together as dissonant as they seem. So there are three instances of groaning that we're going to spend most of the rest of, of this talk listening to. And what I want to note right now is that with each subsequent instance of groaning, each subsequent instance of groaning transcends the one that is before it, by which I mean something has begun to change. Uh, There's something better about that experience, like the, the, uh, the, the groaning has in some way been altered, and yet even as that experience of groaning is transcended, nonetheless the prior experience that caused the groaning is still contained in each subsequent experience of groaning, right? So you got both transcendence and yet not totally leaving behind the prior experience of groaning. You tracking with me here? All right. So first one, verse 22, for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. So the very first thing we hear groaning in this chapter is creation itself, and implicitly, uh, I think we can intuit that this is, at least initially, we can think about these groans as something that are it's the groans other than human beings that are gro- groaning here. All of creation is groaning and suffering, Paul says, the pains of childbirth together until now. These are what we can think of figuratively as groans that are the echoes of Eve's groans in childbirth. Here's what I mean. The suffering that is described here is suffering that is not limited to human suffering, but the suffering and damage experienced by all of creation, which is, called, which is caused by the fall of human beings from their originally intended life with God and vocation in creation. So the suffering that's described here is the suffering that is caused by the fall. The phrase, the pains of childbirth, make that biblically, should make it biblically for us, very clear. They point to the fall of Adam and Eve, in which Genesis describes the agony of human labor in childbirth as one of the sort of keystone evidences of the damage of the fall. In pain you'll bring forth children, right? Y'all have heard that before if you've read the book of Genesis? All right. The agony of damage, the damage to human creaturehood, Paul is very vividly affirming here, is something that is telegraphed not only in human flesh and in human life, but in all of creation. So the death that comes into humanity is a death that is in no way limited to humanity. It is a pain that is in no way limited to humanity whenever Adam and Eve fall. That agony of damage is in creation is what we're hearing in verse 22. Moving on to verse 23, and not only that, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our body. This is an interesting verse among other reasons, because it somewhat brings into tension what we read last week at the beginning of Romans chapter 8, in which we were taking note of the way that our baptism, and especially the anointing of the Holy Spirit that we receive decisively in our baptism, means that we're no longer living in Romans chapter 7 in this experience of enslavement to sin, of never being able to get out of the cycle of futility where our will is so deformed that no matter what we want to do, we can't actually obey the living God. That's an incredibly triumphant announcement of freedom that we've received through the anointing of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And this isn't like going back on that, but it's bringing it into tension a little bit. Because you almost, if you stopped there in chapter eight, where we read last week, you almost might not have a way to account for the ongoing experience of suffering and brokenness that is in fact a reality, even of Holy Spirit anointed life. And so for that reason, Paul says, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, though we are delivered from the cycle of futility and enslavement to sin that caused the original groaning throughout creation. We are not free from the pain of living in that fallen creation. We still within ourselves groan. There is an utterly realized dimension to the power of the Holy Spirit unleashed in our lives. And yet Paul is saying here, we too are eagerly awaiting There's a kind of adoption and freedom from futility that in some mysterious way, the rest of creation hasn't yet begun to experience, but human beings have. Creation is still waiting to experience something of what humanity will one day experience. And yet we too can hear our groans in the groans of creation. We too are still awaiting our own more fully realized adoption as sons and daughters in the redemption of our body. I think in short the way to demarcate the like not yet that's that's indicated in this passage, the way that we're still groaning, still waiting basically comes down to our mortality. It seems to me that that's what's pointed to in our experience and in this verse it, what points to it is the the fact that we're waiting for the redemption of our bodies, our flesh that is still so obviously marked with mortality and headed toward the grave. So these, at this point, what does the groaning sound like in Romans chapter eight? It's the groaning that's not as, as hopeless and futile as what there was before Christ coming to the earth. It's groaning of those that have been in their baptisms and in the anointing of the Holy Spirit decisively claimed and adopted as sons and daughters by God. So something has changed and yet they are groans of the sons and daughters who still suffer in the present as they await final glorification. I want to I dwell there for a minute and listen to some deeper biblical resonances here with this groaning. How do these, does this groaning sound sort of across the larger trajectory of, of the canon of scripture? I think we have to hear the groans of Israel in Egypt at the end of Exodus chapter two, a people who has decisively been claimed As God's people who has the covenants of promise and yet who is groaning under the burden of a vicious enslavement at the hands of their Egyptian taskmasters so in Exodus chapter 2 we read and the sons and daughters of Israel sighed because of the bondage and they cried out and their cry for help because of their bondage ascended to God So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God saw the sons of Israel, and God took notice of them. I think we also can hear in these groans the sighs and the groans of the psalmist at any number of points throughout the psalms. So take, for example, this quote from Psalm chapter 6, I am weary with my sighing. Every night I make my bed swim, I flood my couch with my tears, my eye has wasted away with grief, it has grown old because of all my enemies. So real pain, um, real suffering at the hands of other people. I think that these sides of the psalmist are contained in the groans of verse 23. I think these signs moving forward in the new these sighs and groans they also uh, if we move forward in the new testament they also punctuate the ministry of Jesus if you listen carefully carefully to the utterances that come out of Jesus's mouth over the course of his earthly ministry So for example, I'm thinking here of places like Mark chapters 7 and 8. So Jesus' ministry is well underway. The kingdom of God has definitely begun to come. It is already upon us. Things are decisively changing. Folks that were deathly ill are not being deathly ill anymore because they touch Jesus. People who have been deformed in ways are receiving a regeneration of their flesh in an amazing way that couldn't have happened through any other means except by the Holy Spirit anointed touch of Christ. Something is absolutely beginning to change through the arrival of Jesus empowered by the Holy Spirit. And yet Jesus continues to groan and to sigh. Even in the midst of doing those mighty deeds of of salvation. So, for example, in Mark chapter 7, in the moment immediately before Jesus opens a deaf man's ears and loosens his lips. He's a deaf and mute man. Right before he he makes his mouth capable of saying words. We read in Mark chapter 7, Jesus looked up to heaven with a deep sigh the deep sigh and it's only after uttering that deep sigh does jesus utter the words be opened by which the man's mouth becomes capable of speech only after that inarticulate groan on the lips of christ does the mute man receive the gift of his speech a chapter later in mark chapter 8 in the face of jesus's opponents who were coming to him aggressively, demanding signs and evidence. They're, They're asking for him to legitimate the kind of work that he's doing. When he replies to them, we read this, Sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, Why does this generation demand a sign? Jesus sighs deeply in his spirit. I think... Moreover, we hear these groans or resonances of this groan in Romans chapter 8, verse 23. We hear it ultimately in Jesus' final haggard sigh as he dies on the cross, such as in Matthew chapter 27. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice. But that time we don't hear the words that Jesus says. We just hear him crying out. He cried out with a loud voice and he gave up his spirit. I think we can already say then, if we can in fact hear all of those resonances of groans in verse 28, or excuse me, verse 23, we can already say at this point that Christian prayer in the spirit is supposed to carry us. This may seem like an unexpected thing to say. It's supposed to carry us beyond all of our habits. Of distraction distraction not just in general but distraction specifically from our vulnerability to harm and to suffering and pain Christian prayer in the spirit is supposed to carry us beyond all our habits of distraction we would like I think for prayer to be one more means of escape and of diversion we are like the temptation to 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 live on diversion is not a new thing throughout the history of their being human beings. But we, at this point in history, and at this place in history, we are at baseline, neurotically addicted to methods, actually, of distraction and technologies of distraction. We are compulsive consumers of ever-expanding arrays of entertainment, And on the surface, that might seem harmless enough, as long as it's not causing any damage to your GPA, perhaps. On the surface, it might appear like all we're seeking in our habits and methods of distraction and diversion is relief from the boredom of ordinary duty and obligation. Really, though, I think it's our own death that we're trying to distract ourselves from most Of the time. I think really our habituated methods of entertainment, at the end of the day, they come down to the ways that we want to distract ourselves from our own mortality. Christian theologian Blaise Pascal was really good at talking about diversion and distraction and boredom. He says this diversion is being unable to cure death. And because we're unable to cure death and wretchedness and ignorance, Pascal says men have decided in order to be happy, just not to think about such things. So diversion is, is a response to our inability to cure death and wretchedness and ignorance. We want in our frenetic habits of occupation to move progressively further from the inglorious condition of our mortality We want, by whatever means necessary, to be able not to have to think about our vulnerability to harm and ultimately to death. But Christian prayer gives us no such respite. Instead, prayer is the means by which the Holy Spirit sustains us amid the ongoing travail of a still groaning creation. Prayer is the means by which the Holy Spirit sustains us Amid the ongoing travail of a still groaning creation. In prayer, the Holy Spirit draws us ever more deeply into the vulnerability and honesty and sobriety about just how vulnerable we are as creatures. Not further away from our vulnerability. That's the direction the Holy Spirit draws us, not because God doesn't want us to have fun but because that's the direction that Jesus' life moved in. And it's his sonship upon which our daughtership and sonship is patterned. It's his status as child of God that we're receiving in our adoption as children of God. And so, of course, the Holy Spirit is drawing us ever more deeply into a sober embrace of the vulnerability of our creaturehood. That verse that we read at the beginning, all who are being led by the Spirit are children of God. The children of God, if if their childhood is patterned on Jesus' sonship, then that means those are folks who were always on their way to the cross. That's where the Holy Spirit is leading the children of God. So this isn't just like a nice sentimental thing accompanied by harp sounds. Moving on. Moving on to verse 26. So again as we as we said of verses 15 and 16 the thing to say here in verse 26 about Christian prayer in verse 26 is that the Holy Spirit is praying. It is the utterance of the spirit that is really the thing that is the dynamism of Christian prayer in verse 26. Here the Holy Spirit is praying because we don't know what to say. The Holy Spirit is praying because we don't know what to say. The Holy Spirit is interceding for us. But whereas the Holy Spirit seemingly testified in articulate speech earlier on in our reading... This intercession in verse 26, this intercession of the Holy Spirit is not articulated in coherent words and sentences. Rather, here the Holy Spirit is groaning. The Holy Spirit is groaning in our prayer. And these groans are explicitly contrasted with ordinary words. And what is suggested about that in that contrast is not that they somehow, that these groans somehow fall short of words and speech, but they are in fact in some way more sufficient than whatever could be achieved by ordinary words and sentences. These groans go deeper than our words. The spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep. For words. To cut to the chase just a bit here, what it means that the Holy Spirit intercedes with groans too deep for words is that in prayer, the Holy Spirit carries us beyond all of our own doings. It means that in prayer, the Holy Spirit carries us beyond all of our knowing. What it means that the Holy Spirit intercedes with groans too deep for words is that in Christian prayer, the Spirit carries us beyond comprehending and beyond our understanding. And that may or may not be an attractive thing to us. It may be something we have to learn to cherish and to celebrate and to recognize as good news. We would like for prayer to be an arena of our achievement. We would like it if Christian spirituality was an experience of our strength. We would like... Even if Christian spirituality doesn't mean that we're gonna show up and feel strong the first time, we would like for prayer, maybe at least, to be something like going to the gym, where you can get your butt handed to you when you very first start going, but through hard work and dedication and consistency and discipline, that you can experience the feeling of getting stronger and stronger and stronger as you do it. We would like for prayer to be an arena of achievement. But instead, as described by the letter to the Romans, prayer is the place where the Holy Spirit meets us in our weakness. Relatedly, we would like for prayer to be enlightened by knowledge and by understanding. Man, when you listen to some Baptists or Evangelicals or pretty much, I don't know, a lot of kinds of Christians talk about prayer, who are excited about prayer, a lot of times what they're talking about is all the knowledge that they're getting from their prayer all the understanding that is being distilled from their prayer, all the ways that God is teaching them stuff, giving them things to know in and through their prayer. And I don't want to deny that that happens. But I do just want to, I want you to note how much we want that to be what comes out. There'd there'd be like a, a payoff of knowledge and understanding and comprehension that comes out of our prayer. We want to feel like we know what we're doing, at the very least, when we pray. I mean, how often do you sign up to do stuff, day in, day out, where the main experience of what you, what you feel is, I don't know what I'm doing? Not very often. And the same is true for prayer. We would like for prayer to be a thing where we, at the very least, have the knowledge of what it is that we're engaged in doing when we pray. We want prayer to grow our knowledge. We want to come away from prayer having learned some stuff that we didn't know before. And instead, Paul's letter to the Romans describes prayer as largely an experience of ignorance, of unknowing. In prayer, we have the experience of not knowing. And I'll just testify that it's not just stuff that we don't not know lots of times in prayer. But that in prayer, we have the experience of not knowing whether anything is coming coming out of it. Not knowing what's happening. Not knowing if we're doing it right or wrong. Or not even knowing, as Paul says explicitly here, what to say. I find myself thinking... In light of this verse, of um, all the moments throughout my like like upbringing, in my adolescence, in like youth groups, uh, in, in moments where someone needed to pray, to pray, and everyone eagerly didn't want to be the one that was called on to pray, because the fear was that you wouldn't have anything to say or that your prayer would sound dumb. Um, and by contrast, we had this feeling. And I think I I still feel this way a lot of times that there that the people who really ought to be the one to get called on to pray are the ones that have such eloquent words and such. They can make this like heap of beautiful things to say to God and that we can climb up that heap like a mountain into into the presence of God hand over fist clawing up our way into the presence of God on their words. And I want to be clear here, as I said earlier, to be sure, sometimes the Holy Spirit gives us stuff to say, for sure. But the experience of prayer and of God's presence, at least in Romans chapter 8, is not one in which words are, are heaped up into the presence of God. The groans of the Spirit... Bespeak our ignorance in a fallen world. And yet, the groans of the Spirit are life-giving. Paul obviously thinks this is good news. And I bet, anytime you've ever heard that verse, however much you may not love praying, and however much you might not love the implications that we've been pointing out, In these verses, I bet when you hear that verse that the Spirit intercedes with groans too deep for words, I bet that strikes you as good news. The groans of the Holy Spirit in our prayer are life giving. Because in prayer, the Holy Spirit carries us from our incompetence and from our ignorance into the joy of being known by God. In Christian prayer, we do not know. There's a lot of not knowing in Christian prayer on our part, as described here. But as Paul goes on, what's clear about Christian prayer is that God does know. We may be being ignorant. We do not know, but God does know. And in his knowledge of the mind of the Spirit, Jesus knows both the landscape of our hearts, the following verses say, as well as the will of the Father, so that his intercession on our behalf, animated by the Holy Spirit, unifies his own intimate affection for each one of us with God's own knowledge of his plans. And purposes. This is another one of those Trinity verses where we start getting this stuff about he who knows the mind of the spirit and who searches our hearts. All three persons of the, of the Trinity are involved here. And that's pretty fun. But what I, what I want you to see is that the upshot of that is that it unifies Jesus's affection for us and weaves it together with the will of God. It unifies us with the Lord's own knowledge, not just of us in our hearts, but his knowledge of his plans and his purposes. The groans of the spirit bespeak our weakness and our vulnerability in a fallen world, to be sure. And yet the groans of the spirit are life giving. If we keep reading this chapter, we can see they're life giving because they entrust us into God's purposes. In the snarl of a still groaning creation, our prayer in the spirit carries us out past the brink of our control and our ability to defend ourselves against harm. And it invites us to abandon ourselves as if diving off a precipice into the providential care of the living God. To abandon ourselves to God's providence, to entrust ourselves into the care of God who causes all things to work together for good for those who love God. I don't know about you, but a lot of the times I've heard that verse, it was like a everything is going to be okay kind of verse. Like this is a thing we tell ourselves in order to be like, man, it looks like everything is liable to go awry right now, but everything... Uh, God works all things together for good. And so, I don't know, for me at least, vaguely sometimes it's like, everything's going to be all right, which is not what this verse is saying. And yet it is absolutely affirming the Lord's providential care, that God is actually involved in conforming the happenings of our lives toward His purposes and plans. All things work together for good to those who love God. This is an invitation, man, this is just a word that you can come back to it if you if you get lost in any of the stuff I've said. Just trust. Here's why the groaning of the Holy Spirit is good news for us, because it invites us to trust the Lord in the midst of our unknowing, in the midst of our inability to defend ourselves against harm, and the unpredictability, uncertainty of the world that we live ourselves in. That we live in. The Holy Spirit brings us to the point that we can trust. That God works all things together for good. And that doesn't mean that we're promised safety in the face of tribulation, in the face of trouble, in the face of persecution and famine and nakedness and danger and violence. It's a heck of a list that Paul has here. All things working together for good doesn't mean that we escape those things or are invulnerable to those things. And yet, it nonetheless somehow means that in all those things, we overwhelmingly conquer. Our conquering consists not in becoming invulnerable, much less does it consist in overcoming all that we do not know in our ignorance. But our conquering consists in the fact that vulnerable though we remain, that none of the gnarled uncertainties and dangers of human life and of Christian life, that none of these things can keep us from God. Our conquering consists in the fact that the Spirit moves us through His articulate cries and testimony, that the Holy Spirit moves us through His testimony into the depths of our daughterhood and of our sonship, Our conquering consists in the fact that the spirit holds us through the gift of his own groaning intercession within the embrace of God. So that no matter what we suffer, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.